The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am delighted today to welcome my guest, who is also a fellow registered dietitian, Nikki Streely. She is the author of a terrific book called The Diarrhea Dietitian, Expert Advice, Practical Solutions, and Strategic Nutrition. And I know that this is a topic that isn't often talked about much, but it is a problem that affects a significant number of the American population. So that's why I wanted Nikki to be my guest. I had the pleasure of meeting her at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting in the fall in Houston, Texas, and I knew that she would make a terrific guest. So Nikki, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, Nikki, I guess we should start out by just letting our listeners know that all dietitians go through very consistent standard training, and then we often branch out into our own areas of interest, and that is indeed what you did. You went the path of gastrointestinal diseases and specifically handling diarrhea. What led you down this path? Well, I think first off, I started having my own problems with diarrhea when I was a teenager, probably about 13, and because of that problem, I went through a lot of the tests that doctors put their patients through. So I underwent my first colonoscopy, a small bowel follow-through, also a uh, barium enema. And when they couldn't find anything wrong with me, they decided that I just had irritable bowel syndrome. And so I carried that diagnosis with me all the way through high school, all the way through college. And so it was kind of a natural fit for me to be really interested in the digestive system And then as I went through college, I really started to hone in on that focus, and the nutrition seemed like a great fit. Mm -hmm. Now, in your book, you report that as many as 5% of the population in the United States, that's 15 million Americans, suffer with chronic diarrhea. Based on your experience of 15 years now in this field, Mm -hmm. would you say that one cause of chronic diarrhea is more prevalent than another, or is it evenly distributed among different causes? I think it'd be really difficult to assess that because I think there are so many people that are suffering at home and have never maybe been to the doctor and been evaluated for a certain cause of diarrhea. So I think it'd be hard to to determine that. I think people like to slap the IBS label or irritable bowel syndrome label on patients but but in truth I don't I don't think we know I do think there's an, an imbalance in what's going on in our gut bacteria population mm-hmm. um, but we can talk about that later if you like sure so what were your symptoms and do you believe that yes you do indeed have irritable bowel syndrome and what are the specific symptoms of that particular disease well I think for irritable bowel you know the first thing the doctors do is make sure they're not looking for anything terrible so if you don't lose weight, if you don't have blood in your stool, I mean, I had diarrhea. Usually it would stop when I would stop eating, which is a hallmark of irritable bowel syndrome. So, again, like if you have inflammatory bowel like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, you may continue to have diarrhea even when you stop eating and drinking. Mm-hmm. But with irritable bowel, if you stop eating, the diarrhea stops. So that was one of my symptoms. And I knew that when I ate certain foods, it definitely got worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that lactose was a problem for me. 
um, even early on. And so when I would eat less um, dairy products, I would have fewer problems. So I knew that those things were connected. And then a couple of years ago when I heard about the low FODMAP diet, which I believe we'll talk about later as well, that was really an eye-opener for me too because I discovered all these different components, these fermentable carbohydrates, I think, that were contributing to my own symptoms. Mm-hmm. So early in your book, you talk about the importance of getting an assessment from a physician first, going to the doctor. Yes. So this is before we talk about the dietary modifications that can help. We need to make sure that there isn't something. We want to try to get a diagnosis if we can. So you talk about keeping a journal for a week, you know, trying to go in when you speak to the doctor with some sort of information, so anticipating the kinds of questions that you're going to be asked. So what might some of those questions or some of the things we want to keep track of what might those be? I think there are a lot of questions that the doctors will ask you, but sometimes questions they may forget to ask because we all know those doctor's appointments don't take very long. Sometimes we forget to bring the information with us, so I I think it's helpful if you write it all down before you come. But some of the things they're going to ask you are uh, how long have you had diarrhea and how often do you have it? Does it wake you up in the middle of the night? So do you have to get up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom? Have you lost any weight? Is there any blood in your stool? Um, also, they'll ask about a family history. If you've had a family history of the, you know, some of the diseases I mentioned earlier, like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, which I personally did. I had an aunt with ulcerative colitis, so I think that's why they looked at me a little more closely. Mm-hmm. And then also, if you've been on any antibiotics recently, if you've had any travel to foreign countries, mm-hmm. because sometimes we can get you know diarrhea from if we travel to Mexico or for another foreign country and and maybe a diarrhea, you know, you get it while you're there and you come back and it doesn't feel like it quite goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, those kinds of things are, are what the doctors are going to be looking for. This may sound like a really simple question, but is there a definition for diarrhea? Is there a point in time when a person should say, this is no longer just a bout of maybe one or two days of a bowel change. This is something significant. When do I go see a doctor? That is a great question, and, you know, it's going to be really individual for each person. But even in the medical community, it's been really difficult to assess or even come up with a definition. One of the definitions is the production of loose stools with or without increased frequency for more than four weeks. So that's one of the official diagnoses. And then there's another definition that has to do with the volume or the weight of the stool. Mm-hmm. But I think that for people who are concerned, I don't think it's there's anything that's too early. And if, if you've had normal bowel movements your whole life and all of a sudden you have a change, a significant change in bowel movements, and all of a sudden this is really affecting your day-to-day life, I think it's never too early to go in and get evaluated by your physician. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought it was interesting, Nikki, that you, you mentioned lactose. I mean, there are certain things that we put into our mouths that we can almost guarantee for certain populations are going to be problematic. So, for example, lactose. And especially with certain population groups, lactose, we can anticipate being more of a problem, say, for example, Hispanics or African Americans. The Asian population as well. Right. So explain a little bit about how lactose intolerance works. And a lot of people, I think, get that confused with a milk allergy, but they're really two different things. Yes, they're very different. So lactose intolerance is, well, first of all, lactose is the sugar, the carbohydrate source that comes from milk. Um, So when you eat or drink a milk product, that lactose should actually match up with 
an enzyme that your body makes called lactase, and then that lactase helps to break down the lactose, and then it's able to be absorbed by the body into the system. So there's a couple different kinds of, it's called lactase deficiency. There's the primary kind, which usually happens between ages 2 to 20. It's usually the most common cause of lactase deficiency, and that's called the primary. And then secondary would be if you have another disease or disorder, like Crohn's disease or celiac disease, for example, if you have an, if it affects your, it's called the brush border of your small intestine, that's where that lactase is made. If your villi, which are the little fingers that help digest your food, if those villi are broken down, um, you will not be able to digest lactose as well. And so that's called secondary lactose intolerance. And so it really depends on, uh, you got all these different factors. You know, do you have this primary lactase deficiency? Do you have secondary lactase deficiency? And then you have your genetics built in there too. So if you are someone from an Asian population, they just tend to have more lactose intolerance in that population. And so they actually say it's more common to be lactose intolerant than to be lactose tolerant than to actually tolerate milk products. Oh, that's very interesting. Well, I love in your book you've got your top strategies to stop typical chronic diarrhea, and you go through several items that could be, you know, these are the things that we want to look at, I'm assuming, first and foremost, and lactose was the top of the list. You also mentioned something that I think might surprise people a lot, and that is the sugar alcohols that we find in sugar-free candy and gum, like xylitol, mannitol, sorbitol, those can also cause diarrhea, and I don't think many people realize that. And I think a lot of these companies have put these these sugar alcohols in products to cut back on the calories and still give people that sweet taste, like in in chewing gum, for example, or sugar-free candy, but what they don't often realize is that these sugar alcohols, they actually use them in high doses to treat people with constipation. So, you know, people are thinking, oh, I'm having this chewing gum and it's good for me because it has fewer calories, but they don't realize they're having something that basically has a laxative effect. And, you know, people that chew five or six or seven pieces of gum a day and don't realize how much the quantity that they're getting of these sugar alcohols. Yeah, and I'll bet some people are more susceptible than others to that effect. I think that's probably the case. Well, you know, one thing on this list that really surprised me that I wanted to talk to you about was this fructose intolerance. I had no idea that individuals had a problem with what what is basically a fruit sugar. How common is that? They think that it might even be up to 50% of the population might have fructose or at least a a proportion of, of fructose malabsorption. So it's actually quite a bit higher. And I, in my training, didn't really hear anything about fructose malabsorption or fructose intolerance. And so even when I started learning about it a few years ago, which it came up a lot in that talk about the, the FODMAPs diet, the fermentable carbohydrates, and when it became known to me, I realized that this is one of the issues I have personally, that I have fructose malabsorption. There are certain foods that I know if they have a higher proportion of fructose in them than glucose that I do have, it causes you know more diarrhea in myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really interesting that it, it, people are just getting to know about it. So let's talk a little bit about how we might learn or identify a fructose malabsorption problem in ourselves. Because we get fructose in fruit, does it mean that we can't tolerate eating any fruit? That is not the case. And um, when we, we talk a little bit more about the FODMAPs diet, it has to do with balance. It has to do with the ratio of how much 
the fructose and how much glucose is in a particular food. And it's probably more chemistry than you want to get into today, but sometimes it's just determining your personal tolerance level. So if you know there are some fruits that are a lot higher in fructose, for example, maybe you want to have a smaller portion of that particular fruit mm-hmm. um, instead of having three apples. You know, you might only want to have one, for example. So it really just depends on your personal tolerance level. Mm-hmm. But in terms of diagnosing it, you wanted to talk about that. Mm-hmm. The gold standard is really the hydrogen breath test. And that particular test is fairly expensive and not widely available. So you really need to check in your particular town or your city if that is even a possibility for you. But what they do is they give you a baseline breath sample, then they give you 20 to 25 grams of fructose, and then they take these breath samples at specified intervals for uh, two to three hours. And then if you have more than 20 parts per million higher than the lowest previous reading, then they say, yes, you do in fact have have fructose malabsorption. And if you do know that to be true, then you know that fructose is an issue, then you can work on looking at lists of fruits and vegetables and seeing which ones are higher in fructose and which ones you need to really manage the quantities. So if a person doesn't have access or really doesn't feel like they can afford to go through the breath test, perhaps it's just a matter of looking at our daily intake and saying, hmm, I've got a problem with diarrhea and, gee, I noticed that I do eat a lot of fruit and maybe cutting back. Is that what you'd recommend? Yes, I would recommend that as just a first-line, easy way to see if you notice a difference. And I did that same type of thing, but I did that with lactose for myself. So, you know, sometimes we call it, you know, we call it like a lactose challenge, or in this case it would be a fructose challenge, and it would be just cutting back on the higher fructose foods and then doing that for, you know, five days or so and then seeing if there's a difference. And if you eat a whole bunch, you know, if you eat a lot of fructose-containing foods for the five days following that. Right. Okay, Eileen, I need to remind our listeners that we are speaking with Nikki Streely. She is a fellow registered dietitian, and she is a specialist in gastrointestinal disorders, and she is the author of a terrific book called The Diarrhea Dietitian, Expert Advice, Practical Solutions, and Strategic Nutrition. Okay, Nikki, let's talk about FODMAP. Now, and just for our listeners, it's spelled F as in food, O-D-M-A-P. And the low FODMAP diet is specific to individuals who are having diarrhea of a certain nature. Tell me a little bit about the diet and who might be prescribed this particular diet. Well, what happened with these researchers in Australia, probably last 10 to 15 years, we're discovering that there was a particular group of these fermentable carbohydrates that tended to really cause more gastrointestinal distress in certain susceptible individuals. So that could be people with IBS. It could be someone with Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, celiac disease. It could be just your average person with diarrhea, but that these fermentable carbohydrates were really making the diarrhea worse. And so what the FODMAPs stand for, because I'm sure your listeners and you may not be familiar with it. So the F stands for fermentable. The O is oligosaccharides. Then D is for disaccharides. M for monosaccharides. A is for and. And the last one is polyols. And we did mention those sugar alcohols earlier, and that's what the polyols stand for. So the FODMAPs are actually sugars, starches, and fibers. And it's with people in particular that have IBS, they can't digest and absorb these starches properly. And so what happens is it causes gas as the intestinal bacteria ferment the carbohydrates, and it actually pulls water into the digestive system and causes 
osmotic diarrhea. So there are different categories of FODMAPs. So there's the galacto-oligosaccharides, fructose, fructans, lactose, which we talked about earlier, and polyols, which are the sugar alcohols we also mentioned earlier. So if you can kind of imagine, well, first of all, our colleague, uh, Patsy Katsos, wrote a wonderful book, is IBS Free at Last, and she really goes into this FODMAP diet in great detail. But I really like her analogy of this being a big bucket. And so all of these different types of FODMAPs go into this big bucket. And your bucket may be a different size than somebody else's bucket. But if you overflow your bucket with too many of these FODMAPs in one day, then you get the digestive symptoms. So the big aha for me was that's why I discovered that there would be patients that would say, you know, I don't understand why I can have dairy products someday and I don't have any problems. And then if I eat the same exact food the next day, I totally have a problem and I have gas and bloating and diarrhea and I'm miserable. And the reason is because not just the dairy products, but all of the FODMAPs they were consuming in one day. And so the bucket was overflowing. I see. Well, let's talk about some of the other kinds of carbohydrates, starches and fibers, because we hear that we should be having a high-fiber diet. It helps prevent colon cancer. We know that carbohydrates are our major source of fuel in our diet. I hear so many people avoiding wheat now because of GI problems. Mm-hmm. What other kinds of foods are going to be in that bucket that might cause a problem? So the fructans are the group that includes wheat. Mm. So interestingly, you know, when you're talking about People feeling like they have trouble with gluten because we're hearing that a lot as dietitians and we hear that a lot in the media. Yeah. And I'm on a gluten-free diet. I feel so much better that, um, you know, we mentioned earlier that it was important that you get tested by your doctor before um, you start on a new diet. And one of the reasons is if you go to the doctor and they evaluate you and they say, okay, you do not have celiac disease, which requires a lifelong gluten-free diet, then another possibility is this non-celiac gluten sensitivity And then also this FODMAP intolerance. And what's interesting about the FODMAP intolerance is that it's the carbohydrate portion that you don't tolerate that causes the gut problem versus if you have celiac disease, the gluten portion that you're not tolerating is the protein portion. So it's the same food. It's a slice of bread. But for one person, it may be the protein they don't tolerate. And for someone else, it may be the carbohydrate that they don't tolerate. Mm -hmm. So that's part of if you evaluate yourself, you go through sort of this It's an elimination diet protocol to find out which FODMAPs you tolerate and how much you can tolerate. It's really amazing because then you realize I can sometimes eat whole grains, but if I eat whole grains in combination with the same meal as a glass of milk and a fruit that contains fructose, that type of thing, then you're going to end up with GI symptoms. So it's this culmination. It's the... As you described, it's the bucket and how many of these foods can a person tolerate. And I imagine it's going to vary by person, but it really explains why somebody might have a problem one day and not another. And I think that's what's so frustrating when we're trying to pinpoint what exactly is it that's causing me this problem? What what did I eat exactly? Yes, absolutely. And I think when people try, you know, going on this elimination diet and then you reintroduce these certain groups of FODMAPs individually, then it gives people the freedom to know how big their bucket is and how much they can tolerate so that you can eat the foods you want to eat. You're still getting the variety and the moderation, but you know how much you personally can eat before your bucket overflows and you get those symptoms. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about fiber then. 
with the FODMAP diet, is there going to be a limitation on the kind and types of fiber? Well, initially there will be. The first part of the elimination diet is two weeks of really eliminating the FODMAPs entirely and then you're reintroducing. So in the first two weeks, yes, there will be inadequate, I would say, amounts of fiber just for the first two weeks. But once you really have completed the diet and you know what you do tolerate, there's plenty of fiber you can reintroduce, and that really doesn't seem to be a problem. It's just, you know, we're we're looking for more soluble fiber and less insoluble fiber, and that is because soluble fiber tends to form a gel and really helps more controlling diarrhea versus insoluble fiber, which may be like your bran and your granola and kind of the, the skins on the outside of the fruits and vegetables. That insoluble fiber, at least for my patients, they tend to have more diarrhea when they eat that insoluble fiber. Right, like the wheat bran muffin versus a bowl of oatmeal or Correct. or beans and legumes. That Those would be sources of insoluble fiber. Yes. Well, you know what's so interesting is, so the word, and, and unlike you, I did not learn about any kind of fructose intolerance or fructan intolerance when I was going through school. And mm-hmm. and you're, you're younger than I am, so you had the dietetic curriculum after me. And what's surprising is, you didn't learn about it then either. No. So it just shows our listeners how science changes and how important it is that we get all of this continuing education. But I want to go back to the fructans because this is really interesting. They're complex carbohydrates. You mentioned the wheat source, but onions, garlic, inulin, which is a prebiotic, and then these fructo-oligosaccharides. And talk a little bit about, like, let's put fructo-oligosaccharides in concrete term, what kind of food contains those? So fructooligosaccharides are, they're found in, well, a lot of times they actually add it, they're adding it as a as a prebiotic source, but Jerusalem artichokes are one source, I believe. And what happens is they add them to food because they want to make sure that this food will have a prebiotic source. And what they don't realize is for someone who doesn't tolerate this prebiotic, that they could actually be giving them more Symptoms. So here they thought they were doing the right thing by eating more fructooligosaccharides, but then, you know, in reality, they're actually giving themselves more GI distress. So that's what's been confusing because a lot of the food companies are adding it to the foods, and then they don't realize that, you know, it's making it worse for some a certain portion of the, of the population. Right. Well, I think that this is a great approach, certainly for somebody to at least learn about and try if they're having a problem with diarrhea. Is that your first line approach with regard to diet or do you basically go through some of the foods or ingredients in foods that are more likely to cause a problem? Let's say I were to come to you and I have a diarrhea problem. What are some of the first questions you're going to ask me about my diet? Usually, you know, I give a a 24-hour recall. I'll say, you know, what types of things do you do for for breakfast, what do you do for lunch, what do you do for dinner? I also make sure I look at what kinds of things people are drinking because that can also be telling. So, you know, one of the first things I look at is caffeine. Yeah. Caffeine is a GI stimulant. It makes everything in the digestive system move through faster. So many of my patients will come to me with, you know, really terrible diarrhea, and they'll say, oh, it hits every morning about 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'm miserable. And then we'll look back at their breakfast, and we'll find out that they're drinking, you know, three or four cups of coffee on an empty stomach first thing in the morning. So, you know, caffeine would be certainly something I would be looking for. I'd be looking for how much insoluble fiber versus soluble fiber they're getting in. Uh, we look at you know, the lactose that you mentioned earlier. We'll, we'll look at the, the lactose 
content of someone's diet. Mm-hmm. We'll also look at the, the sources of fructose to see if maybe fructose malabsorption might be an issue. Spicy foods and acidic foods can be an issue for some people. So that's something I will look at as well. That also speeds up GM motility. Some people don't tolerate greasy or really high-fat foods, especially those who have had problems with their gallbladder or even had their gallbladder removed. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also, I'm actually looking at osmolality, and that's something that I don't think was really taught to me in school, but I've learned it kind of along the way, which is it's a measure of concentration. And so for beverages especially, sometimes foods, a lot of times beverages, if they're really high in concentration and you drink them, they get into your small intestine and your body says, oh, that's too much concentration. I need to thin that out. It draws water into the small bowel and causes really terrible diarrhea. Mm-hmm. The osmolality is something else that I look at. And then uh, lastly, I, I will look at uh, alcohol just to see how much alcohol people are drinking because that can affect their diarrhea as well. Mm-hmm. Just some of the things I look at. Yeah, I think these are all wonderfully spelled out in your book. And I know we're, you know, we only have 30 minutes. I'm trying to cast a wide net to cover so many of these issues. But there's one that I want to bring up here because I actually know somebody who had this. And this was really intractable diarrhea as a result of Clostridium difficile. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, Clostridium difficile can be a really frustrating experience. I would say it's, you know, it's a disorder. But what happens is if uh, people will be put on antibiotics um, sometimes it could be something for like a bladder infection or something. And what happens is they get this overabundance of this Clostridium difficile. And in the hospital, we would call it C. diff for short. So you might see it as C period, then D-I-F-F. And this bacteria will just basically take over the gut. And you can actually get what's called toxic megacolon, where people's, their large bowel will just almost explode. And it does sometimes even perforate. They have to have emergency surgery. There are people, there are thousands of people that die every year. And it's, it's very scary, and it's actually treated then with antibiotics. Mm-hmm. But the problem is it comes back, not all the time, but many times this particular infection will come back again. Is that what happened with your friend? Yeah, and actually what she was treated with was a fecal implant. And that, I think, is such exciting research that is happening right now. And so for your listeners that are not familiar with that, um, and I know this is probably going to be more than some people want to take, but... Basically, what it is is they they find a donor with what they consider as healthy or good bacteria living in their gut, and they will take that bacteria and they will reinsert it or insert it into the person who has the C. diff infection and hopefully repopulate their gut with the good bacteria that are actually supposed to be there. And what's been really exciting, they released a, a study earlier this year in January and they released this study, and they cured all of the patients they had, or 94% of the patients that were on this particular infusion. So this donor infusion of donor feces for recurrent Clostridium difficile was the name of the study. And it was so exciting that they had to stop the study early to offer fecal transplants to the control group because they felt like it would be unethical not to. Nikki, so in the control group, it only controlled 7 of 26 of those people. Okay, Nikki. 
I'm going to have to have you back because our 30 minutes is up. There's so oh, much more. Me. Well, there's so much more in this book that I want to review. I want to make sure that our listeners know we've been speaking with Nikki Streely. She is a registered dietitian. Her website is www.diarrheadietitian.com. I will make sure to post that website on the KOPN website so that everyone knows where to find you in this terrific book. And I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank our listeners for joining. Us. And Nikki, I want to thank you so much for being my guest, and I want you to agree to come back and talk a little bit more about your terrific book and, and all you've learned in your practice. Well, thanks for having me, Melinda, and I would love to come back. Great. Thank you.